Welcome back. This is episode 69 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. What do we have in store for folks this I keep wanting to say by week and that is just not a correct term to be using Fortnite. Fortnite, right? We've established the by week is a completely and utterly acceptable thing to say. But yeah, this fortnight we're going to be talking about cold tolerant her petafauna so mainly amphibians but um a little bit of also reptiles which <laughs> a little bit of also reptiles which can withstand temperatures which make their bodies freeze now if you freeze a human it's bad 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 right you're in the morgue if you're frozen but for some of these species that's not the case and they actually have a suite of very difficult to understand and complicated adaptations, which we're going to try and get to the bottom of. Well, we'll certainly get to the bottom of maybe a couple, right? Yeah. I don't think this is going to be a comprehensive, uh, whatever the right term is, of all cold adaptations in all herpetofauna, because that would be, a, you know, that's audiobook length. Absolutely. We're not doing that. Focus in on amphibians, focus in on a couple of the cool adaptations and actually have it slightly centred on one species in particular, right? Yes, very much so. Um, yeah, I think there's obviously a lot to read on this topic, and um, if you find that hearing about cold-tolerant frogs and reptiles defrosts your creative juices, then you can go into a lot more depth. Um, but yeah, we're going to give it a go, give it a bash. Some of these adaptations are pretty mad, um, and it's just, yeah, it's just, it goes against what you kind of think animals can tolerate. So it's, it's an exciting sort of avenue. And this is actually a Patreon episode for Miles Masterson, who requested that we read about cold torrent herps. So thanks a lot, Miles. And, um, yeah, if you want an episode on something extremely complicated and <laughs> hard to grapple with, you also can become our Patreon and, uh, we can find out about something else completely bonkers. But yeah, I think a lot of a lot of what we're going to talk about initially certainly comes from uh, review, which is very handy. And if anyone's got like a deep, deep interest and wants to get into the kind of like technical side of this, um, it's by Kenneth and Janet's story it was published in 2017. There'll be a link in the show notes. So that's kind of the jumping off point for a lot of what we're going to talk about um, yeah that seems to be the most recent full review of cold tolerance in herpetofauna right yeah that's certainly the one that was cited in other papers that was 2019 so i presume well unless there's one out this year which of course there could be but i doubt it yeah um yeah. and i think if you want to if you're interested in freeze tolerance invertebrates i think Certainly Kenneth's story and I think Janet's story too are, you know, the people, the go-to people. Um, Kenneth even has, or yeah, I think he's Professor Story, even has a Wikipedia page bigging him up, which I wonder if he wrote himself. But um, <laughs> not many scientists that you Google. I was like, where's he? What's he up to? And uh, yeah, he's got like a really, really comprehensive Wikipedia page, which uh, is not something you see very regularly. So I think he's like something of an OG of this sort of field of study. So, you know, a very fitting 
pair of people to have written the review. Um, but yeah, without further ado, should we talk about some of the uh, some of these things? So, so this Woodfrog paper I'm talking about, uh, Costanzo, uh, 2019, overwintering adaptations and extreme freezer tolerance. Freezer tolerance. I suppose <laughs> it would be tolerant of freezers, but extreme freeze tolerance in a subarctic population of the wood frog. Uh, published in the Journal of Comparative Physiology, B. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what it is. Wood frogs. Adorable. Hardy. Can freeze without dying. Indeed they can. And yeah, they are a widely distributed frog in North America and Canada. And I'm sure many of our American listeners are very familiar with them. To me, they're kind of like the American equivalent of our common frog. They even look like the common frog. Same genus, same sort of black mask on the face type of thing. Are they, um, are they the same genus or have they been moved to the Lithobates? Oh, really? Which ours or theirs? Theirs. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know. To be honest, I can't actually remember what common frog is. Well, this is a 2019 paper where they refer to it as Rana Silvatica. Mm, but in the intro, they also throw in the Lithobates Silvaticus. Oh, really? mm-hmm. oh spicy. Um... Which smacks to me as if... I mean, I'm sure this is the case. I can't... I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's, a, it's one of these big name things. But whenever people put two names, that sounds like there's a large debate in... You know, concerning a very big genus, i.e. Rana, i.e. Anolis, i.e. Tamarasaurus, and there are two schools of thought, and when people are doing other studies, they're like, well, well, I'll put both. I'll keep everybody happy, which I, I rather approve of. Yeah, you could say it's like a really, it's a cop-out. <laughs> I would not call it a cop-out at all. Yeah. No, <laughs> I would I call think... it a very tactical retreat. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, I've put... I've done it, yeah, Tremerosaurus. It's gone yep. both ways. Um, yeah, it, it's like, it's just one of those, isn't it? I, yeah, I'm not sure why they've um, elected to put it in brackets. And yet they've I think put- it's because Rana's been, there's, Rana's a massive genus, right? And I think there's been a big sort of split up over the years and, and probably a lot of people still treat Rana like they treat Anolis. Yeah. And Colubridae, etc. That too. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or a Laffey was, I suppose, if we're talking about mm-hmm. genera. But, um, yeah, no. It's interesting, though. They obviously use Rana Sylvatica in the actual title of the paper because that's what people are Googling when they think about cold tolerance. Well, and tolerance. it might actually help connect this to previous papers that they're discussing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Trying to keep that continuity from old to new. Which makes a lot of sense. Um, That is one of the issues with with paper. Well, you need to supply your your locality data with whatever you're doing, obviously. But even more so when the species name will change. And therefore, if you don't have the locality as well, it's harder to work out which new name that, you know, previously studied population should be assigned. Yeah. 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 So the reason they've chosen this species to study in this paper is that it's kind of a bit of um, an old hand at freeze tolerance, right? It's 
the species in which I think freeze tolerance was first described. And it's this species which the iconic nature documentary... I can't remember what first, documentary it first was. First species? Not, not, it wasn't spotted in insects before wood frogs? Maybe, yeah. You might be right about that, actually. Yeah. I'm not sure. But this is the one which was like in the nature documentaries where it was like, check this out. And you see ice crystals approaching the frog. The frog's just sitting there. And then the ice crystals touch the frog and the frog's like frozen. Um, <laughs> and you're just sort of thinking, oh, wow, that frog's game over for that guy. And then it's a time lapse. And sure enough, spring arrives, the frog defrosts and boom, the frog's miraculously reanimated. So like a majority of animals that overwinter in cold places, literally the vast majority, avoid being frozen by going to places which don't freeze. So that might be going deep underground um, because the frost layer kind of slowly penetrates through the earth as it gets colder, but it will only ever reach a certain depth, even in the coldest places. And so if you can get deep underground, that frost layer won't reach you and you won't be subject to getting frozen. Similarly, if you hide underwater, like lots of turtles, and we've discussed the cloacal breathing capabilities of turtles mm. on this podcast before, they can survive with like very little oxygen and they can breathe through their multi-purpose holes. Um, but there are some species which don't have these options and certainly this rana sylvatica is one um, because they don't have an opportunity to go deep underground and they need to hibernate on the forest floor um, yeah, often they're under... also not going to migrate yeah they're not going to migrate um, I mean that would be crazy imagine that but, um, yeah the march of the frogs yeah so they <laughs> down from Canada in the winter <laughs> incredible everyone's just yeah that, that would be I'm imagining something similar to like the wildebeest migration but just with frogs mm, in or the uh, the lobsters where the where the seafloor is just covered in lobsters it'd be fields and, and hills covered in tiny wood frogs it'd be beautiful it'd actually be really nice quite a romantic picture you're painting mm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there's, they basically, they don't, they don't want to go underwater. They can't go underground. They need to stay where it's nice and moist because they're frogs. And the trouble with that is if you're somewhere moist and then it gets so cold that the water freezes, you're in a position where you're going to freeze as well. And so, yeah, they've developed a suite of adaptations, which mean that, yeah, they're going to freeze, but no, they're not going to die. And that is what freeze tolerance means. They do not die even when their bodies are frozen. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's the point. And it's not just like a small bit of their body freezing or anything like that. The paper's saying 65 to 75, 65 to 70% of their body gets frozen. So it's pretty substantial. That's, I mean, I suppose, I suppose that's essentially all the water in their bodies. <laughs> it's gross. It's terrifying. I hate to think of it. Um... It does sound unpleasant. What happens, right, when the whole body freezes? So you've got your heartbeat and breathing stop. Your voluntary muscle movement ceases. Brain and nerve activity no longer measurable, okay? They turn into vegetables. Inter-tissue transport of oxygen, fuels, metabolic wastes, yada yada, all this other molecular stuff is pretty much halted. And cells and organs become extremely dehydrated 
and there's not much oxygen either. And the most dramatic thing of all is that ice penetrates all body cavities. So visual observations and magnetic resonance imaging, aka MRI, have shown that ice accumulates between skin and skeletal muscle layers. So that bit of your body, pinch your arm, yeah, frozen. What? It also, <laughs> you know when you pinch your arm, you can kind of feel that little bit between your muscles and your skin. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah, all right. Yeah, Imagine I got that. you. I get what you're getting at. Yep. Imagine that's yep. frozen. Frozen. Oh, I, don't, I can't imagine that right now. You're There's ab- nothing further from the truth right now. <laughs> yeah, you're boiling, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're touching your arm. You're like, I just want to give my hand off my arm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it also, ice also fills the abdominal cavity and fluids freeze in many other sites, including, but not limited to, the ventricles of the brain, so you've got a frozen brain, the lens of Ooh. your eye, that's going to freeze. brain freeze. Yeah, brain freeze, but actual brain freeze. Your eye lenses, the urinary bladder is also going to freeze. A frozen bladder, that's a fate worse than death. Not if you're a wood frog, though. Not if you're I mean, a that's wood. The other, you're listing all these things that do freeze, but... They have the remarkable ability, remarkable ability of shifting where their water is in their body, so at least it's pushed away from organs and stuff towards, like you're saying, like skin or, or cavities and things like that. And it seems to be that they can move up up to 50% of their water content out of organs and into less crucial areas. So if there's a little bit of a problem during the freezing, they're not going to be damaging their organs. They're going to be damaging things that can qu- quite quickly heal or uh, be more resistant to that freezing, which is pretty remarkable. Thinking 50% of the water in your body to specific... I mean, it's it, it sort of... It's hard to imagine having that sort of control over moisture in your body. It really is. Uh, it's completely impossible to empathise with. And <laughs> you, you know, you've mentioned there that the water is leaving... Uh, the important structures and going to places where they can withstand it mm-hmm. freezing. In addition to that, because if you imagine you've pushed all the water out of your body into, not all the water out of your body, but you've put all the water into places which the water can safely stay. The trouble with that is you end up with a lots and lots of important cells and structures which are now lacking in water. And water is obviously extremely important, if, you know, for the pretty much every process a cell undergoes, but also in terms of actually just maintaining the structure of that cell. And yeah, you can imagine that they would shrivel up like... Uh, I'm trying to think of something that shrivels up really well in the, in the sun. A like raisin. Like an old... Yes, a grape. A grape to raisin. What were you going to say? transition. I don't know. It's like an old grapefruit. An old grapefruit? I don't think, I don't think grapefruits would really shrivel. It, Maybe uh, tomatoes? Yeah. Sun-dried yeah, sun tomatoes, dried. they get very shrivelly. Well, imagine then that your frog cell is a tomato and you've left it out in the sun. And the, in this case, the sun is freezing temperatures. It's <laughs> <laughs> a break. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, all right. Carry the, on with this, this wild analogy. The perfect analogy doesn't exist. Oh, wait. Um and so, yeah, the tomato's drying out. And what happens to the tomato as it dries out? Well, it doesn't look the same, does it? It becomes ghastly, misshapen, and frankly, ruined, right? That's never going to be useful as a tomato ever again. Mm, in, but they become it, sweeter. 
Do we have any evidence that the, the frogs become sweeter as they shrivel up? I think that's... In the end of this paper, they said further research is required on the taste of the frogs ah. pre-post-freezing and during... But then I suppose their, their anti-freezing uh, mechanisms probably reduce the, the uh, shriveling upness and therefore the sweetness during their frozen state. I would think they do. Mm. Um <laughs> I've thrown you off there, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. So basically, you've got this frog, and it's pushing all the water into the non-essential parts of its body. But that means the cells are going to get misshapen. So what it does in order to counteract that is it inserts cryoprotectants, which is such a great word, inside those cells after it's evacuated the water. And amphibians particularly, which have created stores of these compounds in their livers, use, e use either glycerol, glucose or urea in order to maintain the cell's structural form. And that way, when the animals thaw out, the glycerol, for example, has been inside the cell, keeping its shape. And when the animal defrosts, it can then reinsert water in the space the glycerol has been occupying and it's more or less undamaged. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's like they can reinforce their cells in preparation for the water leaving, right? That's, that's okay, get everything set, strong, take out the water and it doesn't fall apart. Exactly. Brilliant. Like a paper mache balloon. It's a good analogy. So alongside this mechanism for protecting the cells from a lack of water inside them, the... Amphibians will also switch to anaerobic energy production because they're just not breathing. So aerobic respiration, not an option. Anaerobic energy production engaged. There's different mechanisms for that, which we won't go into in too much detail. But that's well, happening. But the important bit is, is the anaerobic uses glucose. Exactly. Right? And that's why they have to front load their liver with, with glucose production prior to being frozen. So they have a... Uh, stockpile, I suppose is the right word, uh, so they can actually respire anaerobically with no problems. Exactly. So we mentioned that the frogs are allowing water to freeze inside their bodies. They actually can't do this willy-nilly, because if they just allowed all the water in their bodies to freeze, it would not do them any good. As we've mentioned, they need to have some control over this. And the way they do that is that they produce antifreeze proteins to protect areas they do not want frozen. So there will be some areas of the body that will, the water will be freezing inside. And as the crystals form, the wall of ice crystals will come up against a barrier um, of completely unfreezable proteins that the animal has produced. Or it will be, or it'll be proteins which promote the production of really, really small ice crystals which don't do damage to the um, structures within. And so yes. using that mechanism, they can kind of control what gets frozen and what doesn't. And in addition to that, they've also got ice nucleating proteins, which encourage ice to form in other areas. So they've got this dual threat of proteins which stop ice formation, but also proteins which promote ice formation and kind of like distract the ice into forming in other areas of the body. Yeah, see, that's an important point to make, that it's not just being tough against being frozen, but it's controlling where that freezing is. It's not just combating the elements. It is it is directing them as well. It's quite a nice, quite a nice combo, isn't it? It is, it is. So and it, they're not stopping anything, they're just directing it. 
and, and mitigating it where they can in important areas. I mean, we've said 65 to 70% of their body's freezing, so it's the way they achieve that is by prioritizing 30%, survive, you know, the important 30%, and leaving the rest more so alone. I think, yeah, it's, a remo- it's almost like they're compromising with the environment. Yeah, exactly. And for the most part, we're talking about uh, frogs doing this and some salamanders, particularly salamanders of the genus, well, actually, exclusively, as far as I can see, salamanders of the genus Salamandrella. So you've got the Siberian salamander and the shrink newt. Only two old world salamander slash newts? That's all you've got? Well, I've got to imagine there's some northern salamanders in the US and Canada that also can tolerate very low temperatures. Yeah, um, I don't think they've been looked at. Okay, because I mean, the, the, the te- I presume you're looking at the table in the review. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably just that those particular studies looking at the, the lowest temperature they can survive at haven't been done, but I'm sure that there's knowledge of them being able to survive sub-zero temperatures. Yeah, you'd think so, but I wonder if... Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, whether or not some of those salamanders are going underwater... Um, mm, mitigating it in different ways. I would guess that some are going to be freeze tolerant because I've been in places that had snow on the ground and also signs for like, hey, we're conserving salamanders here. Cool. So it's either burrowing very deeply or the freeze tolerance, but there was most assuredly not uh, deep enough ponds that wouldn't get frozen all the way through. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it could just be that that's kind of where this research is at. There's, I mean, there must be more species because there's like, you know, they've got like maybe six or seven frogs that have well-developed freeze yeah. tolerance here, a couple of salamanders, you know, a few turtles. Um, and the turtles is not for, not really for as long as the um, frogs and salamanders. It's like, you know, up to a week that they've, or maybe 10 days, that they've tested them at, you know, minus two degrees. Um, but that probably isn't representative well, it, it might be. Um, well, this is the thing. Unless you've unless you've tested everything, you don't know, do you? Exactly. It's what we brought up in I don't know a couple of episodes ago, where we were discussing uh, some sort of defensive behaviour in frogs and discussing how sort of prevalent it was. And at the end of the day, until you've tested everything, you don't really know. You can make some sort of educated guess, but it's you're never going to be certain. Uh, this strikes me as another one which we're probably lacking a lot of data on a lot of species. Yeah. I mean, studying this really only came into the fore sort of in the early 80s. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I mean, there's still a lot to learn. So, as well as kind of managing where the ice forms, another thing the frogs are trying to do is ensure that body freezing is a gradual process because if it happens too quickly, basically freezing, the actual touching of ice against the body of the frog is the trigger for a lot of these kind of um, processes that go on inside the animal to begin. So if they freeze too quickly, the trigger beginning to freeze and then becoming frozen solid, there's not enough time in between those two things happening for them to actually exact these other sort of... Processes? Yeah, bodily processes. Mm. And so if they haven't done that, 
or if they're not given enough time with which to do that, then they will just die. So yeah, that's another thing which... It's a really nice example with the wood frogs too. So this this paper we, we mentioned, um, they have two populations that this has been looked at in some, some detail. One in Ohio in the northern US and one in Alaska in the even further northern US, I suppose. And they showed that the Alaskan frogs can survive a much higher freeze rate than the ones in Ohio. I mean, they, they were talking about the Alaskan ones surviving a drop in temperature of 1.6 Celsius every hour, which that would feel is quite horrible. a hard thing to imagine. Yeah, like how... I mean, I, I could do with a drop of 1.6 Celsius every couple of minutes for the next five minutes and I'd be doing all right. But <laughs> <laughs> it, the temperatures they're dealing with in Alaska, like negative 10s and stuff, with that sort of rapid rapid loss of loss of temperature it's pretty uh pretty scary stuff especially if you're not you know if you're like a frog and not wrapped up warm yeah absolutely yeah so that paper comparing the alaskan population and the ohio population of these rana mm. silvasca um yeah it's really cool i mean the differences between the alaskan population and the ohio population in terms of their life histories are so dramatic and I mean, I know they're like, you know, quite dramatically different latitudes, but the Alaskan frogs, they hibernate for eight months. It's so cold that they can only be active for four months. Whereas yeah. the Ohio population, it's flipped. So they're active for eight months and they hibernate for four. And, and yet the, physically they appear outwardly to be essentially identical, right? Yeah. The Alaskan think, ones are subject to a slight inverse Bergman's rule, Bergman's rule being the you get larger species in colder climates. Big up Bergman. In this case, we get smaller frogs in Alaska and larger ones in Ohio. But other than that, I think they're largely the same. And really, <laughs> the differences are all down, you know, all interior, essentially, and how they deal with this uh, temperature. Yeah, and these poor frogs in Alaska, they have to endure cold temperatures below minus 30 degrees Celsius. Yeah, see, that's crazy. It's hideous. And, you know, these are animals, as we said, they're not going underwater, they're not going underground. They are hibernating within shallow depressions or forms in soil, overlain by leaf litter and something called duff. Now, I'm not sure what duff is, but I imagine it to be little sticks and twigs and associated... <laughs> Sort of bits of bits of grubbiness. Detritus. Yeah, of you dirt. know. Yeah. Oh, my new jacket's covered in duff. <laughs> oh, that's a duff bit of luck you've had there. Yep. But anyway, these yeah. Are, these are things you could say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, they, they're living in a markedly different place. And to be honest, they're living in a place which, by all accounts, should be completely inhospitable to an animal which is essentially just wet, made of water, and has... No ability to go underground and protect itself. But instead, Alas Alaskan frogs have basically just evolved to be supreme beings when it comes to freeze tolerance as compared to their southerly neighbours. Mm. Uh, and it, there's, a, there's a number of reasons why they're so good at it. So we talked about this cryoprotectant system, which bolsters cells against damage from collapsing or malformation when the water leaves them. Yeah, the, cry the crystal's damaging them, essentially, right? It, yeah, exactly. Cell shrinkage and crystal damage. Mm. Well, these Alaskan frogs, they have incredibly high levels of urea and glucose circulating in their bodies. 
and going to these cells, which limits ice formation and also helps to regulate their metabolism and other kind of associated structural stuff and protecting important molecules in the body uh, from freezing, thawing stresses. And not only that, in the weeks before they begin hibernating, you can actually see the frogs beginning to change because they're undertaking these radical physiological changes. So their fat stores are getting depleted massively. They're basically deliberately using up their fat stores and they're also breaking down their own muscle proteins. And that serves to kind of prime this cryoprotectant system because the breakdown of these fat stores and muscle produces lots of urea and it also allows them to stockpile the glycogen, which we discussed is the cryoprotectant, right. but also you can't, a food source. You can't break stock. down fat anaerobically, right? I believe you're right. Yeah, so you have to get it into glucose that can be done, that can actually be used anaerobically. There's no point having a whole bunch of stuff you can only use aerobically if you cannot properly respire because you're frozen. Yeah. Yeah. So... They base, they're using the same mechanisms as their more southerly neighbors, these Alaskan frogs, but they are, they're just achieving way higher concentrations of cryoprotectants. So yeah, the concentrations of cryoprotectants are really high in Alaskan frogs compared to Ohioan. Is it Ohioan frogs? Are people from yeah, Ohio yeah, called Ohioans? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the term they use. That's, yeah. It's very nice. So yeah, basically these frogs in Alaska, they've just taken it to the next level. They already were part of a species which is miraculously cold tolerant. And they thought, you know what? No, we can do better. Yeah, no latitudes north enough for us. And yeah, okay, they're subarctic, but not by very much. You look at a map, these things are nearly in the Arctic zone. And yeah, perhaps they've kind of reached their limit. Um, and, you know, the Arctic zone is just too much to ask. Because even in the, the temperatures that those frogs endure even in let's take as an example july yeah okay the mean daily high temperature is 25 degrees celsius okay that's the summer's day but the mean daily low is seven so even in the warmest month of the year it's getting down to seven degrees Mm. at night and you know the whole pretty much from october through to april they're enduring sub-zero temperatures almost all of the time. Well, you're presuming it that it is temperatures that's driving the, their distribution. I mean, it could be a combination of temperatures and insect life or water bodies. It could even be soil composition when it comes comes to things that are living in amongst leaf litter. Who knows? Um, so it yeah. might not just be down to that cold tolerance aspect. It might be other things playing into it. I've just actually in- looked at their range map and they do occur in the Arctic Circle. So what I said yeah, previously... So I was, uh, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was looking at my notes and seeing that I did have Arctic Circle written down, but I was like, mm, it's a very easy thing just to flip <laughs> from not <laughs> to is. Oh, right. Were you just going to delete the word? Well, that's what I can. Uh, that's what I thought I might have done in my notes because you sounded oh, so sure. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I just... Uh, no, I, yeah, it's because they studied a subarctic population, but actually they do occur into the Arctic Circle, which is just gross. Well, there you go. Maybe they run out of land. Maybe it all turns into ice and sea. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. But it's another... You're saying the Alaskan one's having better cryoprotectants. It's also... They did a little... There's been a study done that showed that it's not just the cryoprotectants, but it's the way they interact with their cells. Although both sort of operate very similarly when they're deprived of cryoprotectants or in you know lower negative temperatures, there's something about the Alaskan 
the Alaskan population cells that combine very well with the cryoprotectants to give them sort of an extra edge. I don't think they, I think they were sort of suggesting they're not entirely sure what that is, but there does seem to be a cumulative or additive effect with a slight cell change and, um, and the chemical changes or the chemical, the higher chemical concentrations or whatever. Pow. Frogs fighting yeah. ice on multiple fronts. Right? But fighting, but also shaping. That's what I, I like about it. It's not just a straight fight. It's not just yeah. them being tough. It's them being, also being sort of smart. Yeah. They yeah, can't stop like... the freezing entirely, but they direct it. Oh, I just can't imagine... Ice-bending frogs. Being a frog, right? And being in a little depression in the soil. And then you can just... You know, it's pretty cold. You're not thinking about much. But then you can just see this sort of wave of ice crystals sort of coming towards you across the ground. And that then moment, your ice freeze. Oh, just... <laughs> it's so horrible, many, isn't it? It's terrifying. Like, you know, we talked about the turtles which go under the water and breathe through their cloacas and they're mm-hmm. just super cold and they're not really thinking any... I just, like... It, you know, it's, what, what is that like? It's is that so, what you're getting at? Yeah, I'm it's just, so like, alien. I, I just yeah. can't empathise with that at all. It just sounds so ghastly, and then they just get this feeling like it's time to do that. <laughs> They're like, "Oh, it's getting a bit chilly. I know what I'll do: swim to the bottom of a lake." Ah, <sighs> oh, just yeah, it's mad. Mammals, you know, most of the stuff mammals do, you're kind of like, yeah, okay. Even if it's kind of gross, like being an eye and poking your finger in a hole and getting a bug or some sap or whatever you what's know what's wrong I can with that st- can still see myself doing that yeah it's, I mean, fair play, <laughs> it's sweet life. but yeah some of this stuff it's just too it's too it's just such a disparate strategy than what we're doing i think that's why it's so fascinating to be honest well and like we're saying we're quite a brute force species when it comes to overcoming environmental things you know the warm-blooded solution is quite brute force it's consumed more so you can overpower cold it's true. Or I just and we coat. are <laughs> no joke. Yeah, exactly. Modifying your environment. Yeah, like that's that's the secondary solution, isn't it? Whereas the frog solution seems more of a compromise. I I certainly feel. It's frogs are idiots. Just put the heating on, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can't reach the thermostat. What are you talking? They're terrestrial frogs. Matt, yeah, it's true a tr- that. the tree frogs have control of the thermostat, and they want it toasty. Tree frogs don't go anywhere near the Arctic. <laughs> Okay, so I think what we've done there is we've effectively muddled through cold tolerance in both, well, predominantly amphibians. Um, We actually do have some ice or some freeze tolerant species in the UK. Yes. Two two species? Yeah, we've got the common lizard and the adder, which can both withstand um, minus three degrees. Adders for a few hours and common lizards certainly for up to a few days, maybe longer, which is pretty cool. I was surprised not to see yeah. our common frog, Rana temporaria, on that list. But um, Again, maybe, maybe the studies been... haven't been done. Yeah, because I can imagine they're getting frozen. It, I mean, it doesn't get that cold here, but it gets to like, you know, you, minus six, minus seven we see, especially, you know, further north. Mm. Well, the real question, the real question that's on everybody's lips is how do the toads survive in northern Scotland? That is yeah. the question that's on my lips, and I think yeah, I, re- I reckon they burrow down into peat layers and hide in little toad crevices. I think you're probably right. Yeah, but never say never; they might be able to freeze. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to be the one to find out. <laughs> yeah, 
What are you doing for your uh, for your project there? Oh well, we get these toads. They don't really like it, but we put them in the freezer and you see if they make it. <laughs> it's like cool. I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how I couldn't do it. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I could do it as long as the freezer didn't have a window. <laughs> no, <I'm joking>. Oh, <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> no, I couldn't do that. Um, oh dear. But yeah, so there we go. Freeze tolerance. It's absolutely bonkers and it's totally a thing. And um, yeah, there's a couple of papers in the show notes if you want to find out more. And so these were frogs which could withstand freezing. And obviously it would have been a big ask for a species to have been discovered which could withstand freezing. But we have found a frog, but it likes it warm and toasty. Well, it's a nice, it's a nice contrast, right? It lives up in a very high elevation, though. It does. Yes, it does. So maybe it's seen ice one day. Once upon a time. It seems unlikely, but it's possible. Um, <laughs> it does seem very <laughs> unlikely. So this is a paper in Pier J. It's by Katanazi and Tito, published in 2019, and it is entitled Noblella. Thayuni, SP novella, a new species of minute terrestrial breeding frog from the montane forest of the Amazonian Andes of Puno, Peru. And it's not often that you have the name of a species given in the title. Yeah, very convenient, isn't it? Very convenient. And some might say a little bit spoilery, sort of almost... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I like that. I have I like... absolutely no problem with it whatsoever. I like taxonomists to kind of tease me into reading the paper with sort of some quite flowery language about the species, which makes you click. And then, Maybe this... and then, it, and then the name hidden behind a paywall. And once yes. you finally fight your way through the paywall, you realise it's named after something you don't approve of. So you have to start again. <laughs> <laughs> then you go back to your crazed rabblings about frozen frogs. <laughs> nah. Now, nah, but it, we, um, we've got something great here. We got a little tiny eleven millimeter SVL frog. We do lives high, <laughs> high in the mountains, and is adorable. It is adorable. So the genus is Noblella, and it's distributed from Ecuador to Bolivia. And previously there were twelve species, although the authors of this paper suggest there's probably more, simply because they're tiny. They live in the leaf litter, and because of those two things, they're really hard to find. It involves lots and lots of scrabbling around in leaves on the forest floor. Well, which is... and on the side of side of mountains, this is montane forest in some instances, up to 3,600 metres. So Quite... you've probably got elevation issues as well. Yeah. yeah Very yeah. tough to find. That's Yeah, and they're also micro-endemic, so you've got to look in exactly the right place or you won't find them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, they found one frog during this study. One single frog in a remnant of cloud forest in the Cordillera de Carabaya in South Peru. And they basically did a rapid species search, right? So on the 14th of August, 2017. So yeah, they basically did this rapid species search, right? So on the 14th of August, 2017, the two authors, they only had four hours, right? And they had to survey this leaf litter. Obviously, four hours isn't a long time to study 
a big area. So basically what they did was they removed all the leaf litter by hand and just searched opportunistically around fallen logs, rocks, moss-covered soil, etc., etc., in an area about 100 metres squared. And in that area, in four hours, they were lucky enough to find a single specimen, and it's on the basis of that single specimen that they describe this brand new species. No boy, what a specimen. What a specimen. It is nice, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's tiny. Teeny yep. tiny. It's got lovely orange and brown striped back legs and and front legs, actually. The underside of the legs are this beautiful warm orange, uh, almost like a boiled sweet. They're so orange. And speckled with tiny white speckles on the underside, on the top. Hmm, how would you describe that pattern? It's quite a classic sort of microhyla-esque pattern, I would say. You've got a dark brown central X sort of shape with two browny orange spots on either flank. Uh, it's got a little pointed frog face. I think that's a perfect description, and I'm surprised that wasn't verbatim from the paper. <laughs> and tiny little chocolate brown eyes. It's lovely. <laughs> it is nice. Um, the cloud forest at the type locality is a ridge that separates two creeks and is accessible because of a power line maintenance trail. And this species, Noblella theuni, were found in the leaf litter along with a few other little frog species. And yeah, although a lot of this area has been deforested, there are some relic parts of forest and there might be more of these frogs and possibly other new species. Um, they suggest that this should be data deficient because despite the fact that there's like deforestation on agriculture and hydropower, they're not sure exactly where the range is, so they can't necessarily say. Um, that seems a pretty reasonable <laughs> assessment, given they have a single individual. Yeah, yeah. Um, not necessarily a good thing. Um, no, but it's better to have a bad thing that's correct than a yeah. good thing that's incorrect. True, true that. Um, and... What does the name mean? The name of the new species refers to the type locality and only known locality in Thiuni, or Tiuni, which is in Puno, Peru. So it's named after the place, and it's literally just the name of the place. It's not Ensis, because it fitted nicely in the rules of nomenclature, for whatever reason. Yes. Maybe because the first word ends with an A, uh, something like that, not sure, but... <laughs> Regardless, it's really I don't know. Nice. It's functional. It sounds nice. It's a good-looking frog. It probably doesn't get frozen. Probably not. So yeah, Nobelella theuni. So, Ben, you yes. remember a few weeks ago, one of us said on the podcast, "Hey, has anyone got any cool sound bites that we could listen to that are related to herpetology?" Yep. Yep. Well, we've had some come in, quite a few actually, and so I thought it would be fun if I played them to you, and then you try and guess what they are. I'm all ears. I am ready to be routinely incorrect. <laughs> it's really hard. So these first four were sent in by Sebastian Hafer, and yeah, let's logically start with number one. Okay, I'm ready. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> In actual what fact. Is, what is that? Oh, that sounds like a very small lizardy like creature, in my opinion. I would okay. go with a species of Felsuma. That's a good guess. Okay, I'll tell you what. Listen to number two, because that is a very similar, if not the same, species. It's just loading. Here it goes. Oh, it's higher pitched and squeakier. And now there's a little hemodactylus in the background that's just made a noise for me too. Just to throw me off my game. Hmm. So type of gecko? Or am I am I in the wrong Yeah, you're totally right, man. Like you did amazingly well. Um I'm actually really impressed. So the first one is, they're both barking geckos from Namibia. <laughs> okay. And the first one is a cox barking gecko which is Tinopus cocci, and the second one is a spotted barking gecko, which are Tinopus garrulus maculatus. So you absolutely smashed it, to be honest. Um, I'm happy with that, considering that I have never actually heard of those individual species, so it would have been impossible for me to get those right. Yeah, I get. I can't remember what I guessed, um, but definitely wasn't anything like as close as that. So yeah, fair hey, play. Excellent. Um, okay, so should we go on to number three? Number three. Oh, spooky! I'm gonna have to huh? to that one again. I'm going to have to up the volume a wee bit. Very, very quiet. <laughs> well, it's like a sad frog. It's like a like a squished spring peeper or something. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd definitely go amphibian. Um, and I'd go for. Perhaps a small Dendrobates species. Again, you're close. It's actually a tree frog. So, um, oh, excellent. Yep. And it's the Cuban tree frog, Osteopilus septentrionalis. Okay, so I'm not too far off in terms of geography. Okay. Okay, I'm, I'm satisfied with that. You're, they yeah, sound you're cute. Good. I actually guessed, I, when I guessed, because uh, Sebastian asked me to guess, and I said, I think it's from Hyliday. So on that one, I was actually closer than you. But, you know, that's, we're, we're splitting hairs. You did very well. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to get one in there because I actually thought the barking geckos were frogs. <laughs> well, it's easily done, dude, because you, you're not poised to think uh, squamate when you're presented with noises. No, they're usually pretty... Quite quiet. Okay, okay so number what we four. Here, then? And I will say before you listen that number four is very hard, so don't beat yourself up. Is it that, that squeaky noise that sounds more distant? Is that what I'm meant to be guessing with? Or yes. is it the like... Okay. No, it's like the... <laughs> That bit. Yeah. Mate, I would just, <clears throat> I would just guess because it's really hard. You're not going to get it. <laughs> it's literally like, it's so about... out there. It's so out there. All right. Something that's out there. 
Um, it is the distress call of a smaller gamut. You're, cl- you're close with, in terms of distress call, I mean, um, yeah, you've recognised that whatever that is, is having a bad day. And yeah, Seb actually described this last sound as demonic. Um, it's a fledgling northern mockingbird, and those are its distress calls while it's being swallowed by a Bahamian, uh, a Bahamian racer, which is Cubophis oh. Voody Voody. Oh, well, damn. <laughs> so it's only tenuously related to herpetology because it's being eaten by a snake as this bird gives up its last final cry. Oh, that's I like that. I like the twist. Number five. I mean, number five sounds not dissimilar from Kalula Poultra. Get but... out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. You know it. That's amazing. Is that actually Kalula Poultra? Yeah, Kalula Poultra, the painted yeah. frog. Well, I mean, to be fair, mate, that's what I hear out, out the back every now and again. So, Oh, wow. That's, that's probably the most heard frog call for me in general. That's awesome that you got that. So that... That's so, so, so good. I don't remember hearing that when I was in Thailand. Um, perhaps it's like a specific... Is there a season it, where you that, hear that? That, one, that one's much higher pitch, to be fair. Oh, and really? when, when you hear them hear them here, certainly in station, they are deeper. Um, no, you should have heard them, dude. You, you would have heard them. I think you just, you, you've forgotten. Yeah, maybe. I probably, I, I mean, I definitely didn't recognize it for what it was. And I guess that just, yeah. And it's very infrequent. You see the frog with the call. Mm. Like the especially the Kalula because as soon as you get close to them they all shut up don't they? Yeah, they're shy boys. Mm. Yeah, well that last one was recorded by Law Ing Thong from the Herpetological Society of Singapore and shared with us by Sankar Ananthan Arayanan. So thank you very much. Superb. Um, yeah, thanks also to Seb for sending those in. They were awesome. Yeah, thanks very much. That was fun. Ben, mate, you did so well. Like, wow. I'm quite happy with that. Yeah, Dude, you, you're a herpetologist, mate. No one can say anything otherwise. So going going to doing some in acoustics. Yeah. Um, sweet. Um, okay, have you got any other business? Um, any other business? Um, I feel like there was some any other business, but there was from me. Did I did I mention tortoise stuff in the last time? Last time, I did, didn't I? You alluded to it in our podcast recording with Brandon Barassa but you have not mentioned it on the podcast as far as I can recall. Oh, well, I'll mention that, I guess, just to make sure it has been mentioned. Uh, preprint out about tortoise movement and conspecific attraction versus avoidance, trying to get the most we could from data that was mm, collected every like couple of days or something like that. So that, that was some interesting challenges there to deal with that sort of frequency of tracking. Um... Yeah, people are free to read it if they would so wish. Uh, if they spot uh, any dramatic errors in the analysis code, data, whatever, let us know, please. <laughs> and is that on... <laughs> the purpose of a preprint. Is that That's on BioArchive, yeah? No, no, we've gone with uh, Open Science Framework for this one um, because the system is way easier to deal with. Uh, and I really like the OSF because it's, it's provided a platform to put all the figures, data code all that including the manuscript on a on a uh a platform and then you pretty much just go hey make this a preprint 
pull the PDF over, add some author information, job done, preprint, all the data and code used to produce the paper right next to it on the same platform, all linked up. And I really like that as a convenient way of sharing uh, information. So that's that's why we went that way this time. So it's got some drawbacks for from compared to BioArchive as well. Namely, less people have heard of it, and it seems to not get the same sort of traffic. But everybody that's not starts really what somewhere. I. Well, that that I don't really care about that particularly at the preprint stage because the point is you want to share it to people who are going to find it useful, which I have done, and that's the reason pushing out the data early and the and the code early is so people can adapt bits of it or see it as an example or whatever. And in that front, it's been really good and really useful. Decent. Sweet, man. Hey, so uh, tortoises, adding to your list of uh, telemetered species studied with a Chelonian. I love that. That's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, you know, methods a little bit different as well. And and, uh, yeah, interesting study species. They're lovely. Man, I remember when those guys were trying to find tortoises. That is no easy feat. Nope. Nope, they just look like rocks. They look like rocks, and yeah, they're just, I don't know, they're just completely and utterly mad. I don't know. I think they just, <laughs> I just think, you know, especially in that environment, like, with the sort of long grass and stuff, it's just, like, yeah. you, it's just really hard, isn't it? And they're, they're so ponderous, and snakes cross roads and stuff like that, it gives you an opportunity, but tortoises... Tor- the tortoises do too. The tortoises, a couple of them were, were found on the road and stuff. Oh yeah, fair, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the only time I ever came across them was tripping over them, but very rarely. Yeah, I almost sat on one once, but that was about it. Cool, so uh, I've also got something from Scott Iper. So you'll remember, what, a few episodes ago now, we were talking about a book that we didn't have um, you mean almost every single book in existence? Yeah, I don't know why I said it like that. You know, can you imagine a book I, that we don't have? <laughs> yeah, I, think I, I, uh, I have two books with me. That's it. That's all I've got. And neither of them are about hepatofauna. Uh, <laughs> Scandalous, I know. Um, yeah, I mean, geez, you want to be careful you tell that too. Well, yeah, you don't need books. You can ID anything just based on the noise it makes. So, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, so, 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 Scott, we were talking about Alan's coral snake. Remember that, my Chris Alan and I? It was eating the little leaf little snake. It was the note published uh, by. Oh yes, 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 yeah, yes. From yes, yes, her yes. review that was published by. Um, Chris Anderson and yep. Andrea Liebel. Liebel. Um, yeah. We did a couple of episodes ago. Anyway, we were like, oh, they mentioned in a book that they might eat snakes, but obviously we don't have access to that book, so we can't say. Well, Scott Iper, man of the moment, who was on our last episode, he actually had the book, which is um, The Amphibians and Reptiles of La Selva, Costa Rica and the Caribbean Slope. And he was kind enough to share with us the page on Microus Al and I. And in there, it actually says, and I quote, This species is known to eat swamp eels and lizards, but presumably consumes other snakes as well. So, yes, that was the first... Other snakes as well. Yeah, but 
what that means mm-hmm. is that the paper we were talking about does in fact represent the first record of snake eating definitely definitely in that species cool Very i cool. think as far as i recall yeah <laughs> definitely definitely Possibly. i think as far as i recall <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yes so yeah thanks scott cool. for taking yeah, the time to send us those it's really cool to yeah, see yeah, yeah. One final thing before we go, uh, we got a new Patreon, Catherine Reed. Thank you, Catherine. Oh, thank you very much. You are Keeping great. those lights on. Yeah. And I think that just about rounds it off for this episode on Cold Torrent Herps. Miles Masterson, I hope you've enjoyed your episode. But yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We are herphighlights at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to become a Patreon, you can at patreon.com slash herphighlights. All donations are very gratefully received. Or if you've got a strange, or not even strange, because, I mean, every every animal's sound is strange to somebody who hasn't heard that animal before. Well, not any animal, but any herpetofauna sound. Send them in too. Because that was brilliant. Yeah, It was like was... a little journey across, you know, through frogs and geckos and you know, great fun. Yeah, next time we'll do it so that I can guess and you can play. Oh, so we're both blind. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Although Seb did make me guess and I did just really badly. Um, Well, that's very big of you to say. Yeah. Oh, mate, I'll fully accept my flaws. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but anyway, I think that's it. So, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Thank you for listening. human birth rates inexplicably go up nine months after the passing of the frogs because it's so lovely (laughs) what (laughs) (laughs) it's not inexplicable at all it's perfectly explicable um (laughs)